Hints to Young Students of Occultism by L.W. Rogers Read by Graham Dunlop Edited by Darren Grimes Preface The growing interest in the higher life and the general search for information that is helpful in attaining it is sufficient reason for the publication of this little book the purpose has not been to write of the subject in hand either exhaustively or systematically, but to put forward helpful suggestions for taking some easy steps in self-development. Many who earnestly desire to escape from the bondage of the lower nature and rise to spiritual illumination are at a loss how to proceed, or even how to practically apply to daily life the occult information they may have gained by general reading. This little volume is an effort to assist them. Hints on how to utilize time and energy. A few guideboards in the evolutionary wilderness at doubtful turns in the road, indicating the advantageous way to go and displaying warning signs across some attractive byways that lead to perilous places. Chapter 1 Introductory The Young Student of Occultism he who is just beginning to learn that there is a deeper meaning in life than he had suspected, who has but recently come into contact with theosophy's explanation of the purpose of life and the method of human evolution, often has the idea that there is some particular bit of information which, if he can but secure it, will enable him to quickly develop clairvoyance and rise into the possession of great spiritual power. He has an impression that there are certain formulas which the teachers can hand over to him, if they will, that can be used as a key to unlock the storehouse of occult knowledge. If the beginner would make rapid progress in evolving the divine powers within him, he should put aside such notions and realize at once that all any teacher can do for him is to point out the way in which he can help himself and that knowledge of the path to be followed will come to him in exact proportion to the earnestness of his desire to find it. He should remember, too, that there are precepts to practice as well as knowledge to gain. It is extremely important for him to study the literature of occultism, to read and to learn all he can possibly from those who have information to impart. But something more is necessary. As he acquires these spiritual truths, he must strive to live them, to shape his daily life by them. Fortunate indeed is he who can make his inner spiritual development keep pace with his intellectual acquirement of the facts. To discover a spiritual truth and then make no use of it in the evolution of one's character is quite as bad, if not worse, than to remain in ignorance of it. For responsibility is measured by opportunity. The idea that anyone can put the beginner quickly into possession of spiritual power is as erroneous as it would be to suppose that, by handing him a diploma, a university president can give a young man an education. This notion that theosophy has occult wealth to be handed over in a lump sum, to be conferred instead of earned, is usually accompanied with the desire to be conspicuously helpful, to quickly undertake some work the benevolence of which is at least equaled by its dramatic method, to become one of the invisible helpers who has the power to work in his astral body during the hours when the physical body is asleep. That is a most laudable ambition and a worthy thing to attain. 
But the point that should be understood about it is that the way to it is through actual spiritual development to not by the intermediate opening of astral sight. The first step toward being an invisible helper is to become a visible helper, to cultivate the desire to help by exercising our benevolent impulses on the human beings about us. When we have actually become of service on the physical plane, when we have utilized the opportunities of our daily life to assist others, and have thus proven that the thing we really desire is to be helpful and not merely to possess occult power, we shall have taken the first necessary step in the realization of our ambition. If the beginner is anxious to know how rapidly he is getting on in spiritual development, he has only to watch his daily life. His first work is to get control of his physical body and make it obey his will. Therefore, if he can see that he is growing less irritable, that trifling things are losing their power to annoy him, that he is not so easily thrown off his balance as he used to be, he knows that his will is becoming established in its power to direct the physical and astral mechanism through which it functions. It is always to the little things, rather than to great events, that he should look as tests of the new powers he is developing his fitness to pass the portal, later in his evolution toward which he is now directing his first uncertain steps, is not determined by one supreme occasion, like an examination for entering some university, so much as it is being determined by the thoughts and desires of his daily life. And it is the little things, the small problems of the daily life, that are hourly testing his judgment. His sincerity his courage, and his patience. Unless he begins to be successful in meeting these, he cannot hope to become even a candidate for greater tests of his powers. There are many ways in which the young student of occultism can begin the cultivation of the character. There are many ways in which the young student of occultism can begin the cultivation of the character qualities he must possess before he can go far in his efforts at conscious evolution. Scores of things he can do in the line of character building that will lay an enduring foundation for the spiritual power he would attain. And let it be well understood that all such work done in the beginning will save him much trouble and give him great satisfaction later on. The reward for his pains will be rich indeed. He who erects a fine building upon a weak and illy constructed foundation is no more foolish than he who does careless work in the foundation he lays for his temple not built with hands. Every flaw in the foundation is a menace for the future. And is not that precisely why the testing is so constant and continuous? The things that ceaselessly test us, that sometimes appear to bar our further progress, should be as welcome as the ring of the inspector's hammer on the car wheels before one's train leaves the station or as the test of plumb and square in the house builder's operations. Self-examination An excellent thing for one to do when he is first coming into knowledge of theosophy and is beginning to seek the way forward by its guiding light is to ask himself in what particular traits he is lacking and then earnestly set about acquiring them. It is usually not difficult to find some weak points, is there sound moral courage? Does he ever fear to express an opinion that he feels ought to be expressed, but which he knows to be unpopular? 
Is he firm in defense of the truth as he sees it? Or does he take refuge in silence when he instinctively feels that he should speak? Moral courage he must have, and he should begin to inspect his daily conduct and seek to strengthen his character in this direction. And so he may run down the scale of his virtues and his frailties, critically examining each point, until he comes to things we usually consider as of no importance. Is he careless about the waste of time? Does he realize the value of every hour of his waking consciousness? Has he begun to understand the fact that the average man fritters away in an aimless sort of fashion by far the larger part of his physical lifetime and makes but correspondingly feeble progress, instead of which he could, if he would, so use that wasted time that it would count tremendously in quickening his evolution? If he does understand that fact, he will begin to take account of his waking hours and ask what he has to show for them. He will scrupulously cultivate the habits of promptness and punctuality. If he has an appointment at a certain hour, he will not arrive 15 minutes later, nor five minutes later. If he has letters requiring replies, he will not permit them to lie about unanswered awaiting the vague and uncertain time when he happens to feel like writing. Among his earliest lessons should be this fact, that procrastination is not only the thief of time, but also of other people's time, and that responsibility for careless conduct by no means ends with this personal loss. In many directions, he will find opportunities. If he seeks them to strengthen his character and perfect his armor against the coming day of a mighty conflict, Great things are possible only to strong souls, and it is from the trivial events of daily life that strength is won. Until we have become masters of the little things, there is nothing great awaiting us. Chapter 2. The Importance of Attention Perhaps it would be impossible to exaggerate the importance of the thing we call attention. It should be assiduously cultivated in every possible way. Whatever is being done should be done with an undivided mind, whether it is important or trivial. Attention to the work in hand is not only the first step towards success with that particular bit of work, but is also a step in actual occult development. To study a subject for a half an hour with unwavering attention accomplishes more than to follow it a half a day with a wandering mind. And while we are thus gaining knowledge rapidly by determinedly sustained attention, we are doing something more. We are bringing the mind into the particular condition it must reach before any marked progress in occultism is possible. The mental habit of most people reminds one of a kitten at play. It strikes at a swinging string, catches up a bit of paper, leaps into the air after a fly, then darts into another room to dash from object to object in a new field, all for no other purpose than because it has nothing more serious in life to attend to. So it is with the wandering mind. It fills up the time with a multitude of trifling thoughts that, all summed up in the end, amount to simply nothing. It occupies itself with dreamy speculations about nothing in particular, darts backward to uselessly run over a recent conversation, leaps off to review a journey made about a week ago, dallies over a remembered remark by a friend, suddenly recalls a duty not discharged, forgets it the next instance because a carriage passes the window, 
and then dashes off on some entirely new round of equally frivolous mental activities that are as devoid of connection with the first set as they are of method or purpose. Such a state of mind belongs to that period of our existence when we had no knowledge of the purpose of life. It is not becoming to the student of theosophy, and he should, without any loss of time, begin an earnest effort to free himself from so pernicious a mental habit. A good way to accomplish this is to endeavor to keep the mind steadily upon the work in hand, whether it is reading, writing, talking, listening, or discharging some simple duty. When it is some pastime or recreation to which attention is turned for rest, the mind should be fully given up to it and kept entirely away from the work that it has been temporarily dropped. Attention is the very gist of occult progress. It is impossible to imagine anybody getting on without acquiring it, and the way to acquire it to the degree that makes it effective is to keep constantly at it in all the little things we do until it becomes an ingrained and deep-seated habit. Is not attention the very basis upon which occult development rests? Take as an example telepathy, with which most people have had more or less experience. You are about to say something when your friend says it for you. You have decided to move a chair or open a window, but before you can rise, your companion requests you to do that particular thing. You have not thought for a week about purchasing a certain needed article when it comes into your mind suddenly, but before your thought can frame itself into words, your companion brings up the subject. Very often you both speak the same words at the same instant about the same thing. Very often, too, you know precisely what another is going to say just before he utters it. Now this occurs when the mind is not disturbed by other thoughts and things. We cannot imagine a person getting the thought of another when his own mind is galloping about among other subjects. How can he get what another is thinking when he does not even get what he is saying? But we can imagine telepathy being cultivated by close and sympathetic attention. We can imagine a person listening so intently to another's conversation and getting so completely into his line of thought that he gets his ideas before they are expressed in words. Such centered and sustained attention necessarily cultivates sensitiveness. A very good time for cultivating the attention is while listening to a discourse. And a special effort can be made to get every idea expressed by the speaker. And if, as sometimes happens, the ideas are not numerous, to give the closest attention to all that is said, keeping mental account of the points as they are developing, without losing anything that is being stated. Whether one agrees with the speaker or not should not be permitted to impair the attention. In either case, the mind should be held unwaveringly upon the discourse, so firmly and persistently that there is no opportunity for other things to intrude. If the ideas come from the speaker too slowly to occupy the mind, it can be kept busy reviewing the points thus far made, or even in speculating upon what are likely to come. But in any case, it should be kept to the speaker and his subject with the greatest care. The attention should not be permitted to fail from the moment he rises until he is finished. This attention should be absolute. If somebody enters or leaves the room disregarded, Try to see nothing but the speaker and hear nothing but his discourse until it is finished. If this practice should at first prove trying, it need not be continued throughout an entire sermon or lecture. 
but for such length of time as may be decided upon the attention should be rigorously sustained. If the discourse is a good one, much more will thus be learned from it. If it is of the order that bores one, it will be robbed of much, if not all, of its suppressiveness. For when the mind is concentrating upon it and busy speculating about it, time does not hang heavily, but passes without notice. An unfailing method of shortening the apparent time of any discourse is to concentrate the attention upon it. Original Thinking Another thing which the young student should take up is the matter of original thinking. Naturally, he will read much of occultism in the books written by occultists, and he will have a tendency to fall into their style of expression. When he prepares a paper on a theosophical subject, he will usually find, upon critically examining his work, that he has set forth much the same points, in much the same way, with the same degree of emphasis, and with the same kind of illustrations that his authors have used. Often he unconsciously falls into almost precisely the same expressions. All this is work in an imitative rut, from which he should make a determined effort to extricate himself. No matter how admirable the work of the teacher is, the student does not desire to become either a copyist or a parrot. He does not want his mind to get the habit of running along only the grooves fashioned by others and then not running at all when it reaches the end of the groove. To avoid this misfortune, he should read only for a short time and then stop and ponder well the ideas presented. Let him try to find various points of view and see if he cannot think of something more to be said on the matter. He can call up in his mind some of the experiences that are in line with the statement of principles given and ponder over the corroboration thus furnished. When he discusses with others what he has read, let him try to avoid the exact language used by the author and put the thought into original expressions of his own. He should endeavor to think out original illustrations to eliminate the subject, and new sets of circumstances to which the principle stated will apply. And the way to do is to think and think and think about it. Original thinking is an invaluable accomplishment, and the only reason why there is not more of it is because there are so few who are willing to give it the necessary time and effort. Chapter 3. Persistent and Regular Effort Another matter which the student who is just entering upon the study of occultism should have well settled in his mind in the beginning is the necessity for hard work. Whoever starts out with the notion that indifferent and desultory study of the subject will carry him through is foredoomed to failure. And he who imagines that by galloping through the literature of occultism as he would read a collection of novels, he can become an occultist, will be nearly as far from his goal when he finishes as when he began. He may give to his occult studies much time or little as he will. That is not the point. The important thing is that, whether the period be several hours a day or but one hour, or even the half of it, it should be characterized by that mental energy that is the natural result of an eager desire and a steady purpose. Half-hearted work is but little better than no work. Without hard work, the student's progress will be discouragingly slow. That is true of all our undertakings. Why should it not be true of occultism? The university student who makes rapid progress in law or medicine or mathematics or languages is he who works hard. Genius is only the essence of hard labor. 
It may have been performed in a past life, but that does not alter the fact. We have no faculties that we have not made, and every mental effort now is determining our intellectual accomplishments of the future, as well as accelerating present progress. Not only should we work with wide-awake energy, but we should work with persistence and regularity if we would get on. Regularity has a magic of its own. A given amount of energy put forth regularly, steadily, produces enormously more than the same amount of energy put forth irregularly, spasmodically. Let the young student set aside each day a certain time for occult studying and thinking and permit no break in the work, and he will make gratifying progress. The difficulty of quickly getting down to work grows less and less. The art of becoming absorbed in the subject matter becomes easier and easier. Soon he finds that his hour or half hour, as the case may be, counts in results out of all proportion to the time recorded by the clock. But let him make the mistake of giving occult studies two hours today, nothing tomorrow, 15 minutes the next day, nothing more for a week than a full day to make up for lost time with such future chance periods as convenience may dictate, make it the sport of circumstance and the dependent of caprice. And the sum total of many more hours will take him a much less distance on his spiritual journey. By the first method, he gets into the current of regularity and it carries him along with a sort of cumulative momentum. He is really entering upon a new moral and intellectual life, acquiring a new viewpoint, a new standard of measures, setting up new habits of consciousness, and a certain inertia has to be overcome. By regularity, he not only gets into the new stride quickly, but does not wholly lose it during the intervening hours. While by the second method, he not only loses it, but loses most of his study time in getting back to it. He has the inertia to overcome again and again and spends most of his time making new starts instead of making progress. Regularity in the study of occultism counts heavily for progress in still another way. Such study is usually taken up by the beginner after he has seen or heard something that has aroused his interest in the subject. It may be some occult experience or a conversation with a friend or on account of psychic phenomena in a newspaper or a lecture on theosophy, something has aroused a temporary interest. Now, if he sets out with a plan and purpose and decides in advance that he will follow a fixed program of daily study, there is a fair chance that he will acquire a permanent interest in the matter before his enthusiasm wanes. But if he has no prearranged program and only decides to utilize for such reading and study the idle time that he may chance to have in the coming days, he is extremely likely to permit one thing after another to push aside his occult studies until his interest slowly fades out and his golden opportunity is gone. It is a golden opportunity when any human being is, by any occurrence whatever, brought into contact with occult teaching. And fortunate indeed are those who realize it and promptly act upon it. It may mean to them, at its very least, all the difference there is between many happy, useful lives and many very commonplace ones. Although it may appear on the surface to be a trivial matter whether one follows up such an opportunity at once or not, trifles at the starting point may represent great differences further along. Two raindrops may fall nearly together at the top of a mountain range, and yet, because one strikes the eastern slope and the other the western, 
ultimately find their way into different oceans. Those who have a fondness for such analysis have often shown that great events have turned on the pivots of trifles. The difference between adopting a regular program for daily occult study and adopting another that is lawless and erratic is one of those apparent trifles that serves as a pivot on which a destiny may turn. Enthusiasm Enthusiasm is a thing of priceless value. Somebody has defined it as the power of God made manifest in a human being. Whatever else it may be, it is certainly a great motor power, a force that carries one forward and upward. The difference between a person filled with enthusiasm about occultism and another who is not is the difference between life and death. One is asleep to everything but his material surroundings. The other is awake, aroused, in touch with the life currents of the universe. The chief work of the theosophical lecturer is to arouse such enthusiasm, to so present spiritual facts to the minds that can receive them that the recognition of universal truth kindles the divine fire within. With those who have reached a certain point in evolution, this flame of enthusiasm will burn steadily, however feebly, and they may fortunately walk in the light for the remainder of this incarnation. With many others, it will slowly subside, leaving them, however, more susceptible to future stimuli. Happy indeed is that truth-seeker who resolves upon a program of daily study and, while the flame of his new enthusiasm still burns, gets settled into the fixed habit that will carry him safely to the point where his temporary interest has become permanent. Chapter 4. Thought Assimilation is Essential to Soul Growth the student of theosophy should read much but think more. He could get along without reading if books on occultism could not be had. But he could not get on without thinking if all the books ever written were at hand. There is a close analogy between the growth of the physical body and the growth of the soul. For the body to grow requires both eating and digestion. Of course, there can be no bodily growth whatever without digestion and assimilation. By digestion, the food is reduced to the condition of which it is available for bodybuilding, and by assimilation, it is built in. And precisely so it is with soul expansion. The raw material of facts, principles, and experiences must undergo a certain process before they are available for soul growth. Reading and observing are merely the acts of collecting soul food. If we do nothing more, it is as though one should eat when, through some physiological derangement, the function of digestion is suspended. There could then be no gain to him from it and no growth on account of it. The mind is to the soul what the stomach is to the physical body, a laboratory of preparation. The mind takes the accumulation of facts, principles, observations, and experiences, and from the whole mass extracts conceptions, new views on things, new understandings of life, extracts the very gist of the totality of perception. And this essence of the whole is then ready for assimilation by the soul, ready to be built into the causal body. By the action of the mind, the rough material for soul growth has been transmuted and made available. And without such action, that material in the rough could no more be utilized for soul growth than fruits and vegetables as such can be built into the physical body. Mind action, then, is not merely important, it is absolutely necessary. 
Whatever the time may be that one can set apart for occult studies, each day there should be a reasonable portion of it given up exclusively to quiet thought, into which no reading is permitted to intrude. It is a common error for those just becoming interested in theosophy to bury themselves in some book during every moment that can be snatched from pressing duties. This eager desire to read everything on the subject within reach is most commendable, and the burning zeal that grasps at every possible acquisition foreshadows rapid progress. But the sooner that zeal is directed into channels along which it may make the most of the energy expended, the better. To this end, a certain definite time should be determined upon for quiet thinking about the higher life. A half hour is little enough, but twenty or even ten minutes is much better than nothing. The hour at which it is desirable will naturally vary with the habits and duties of different people. But it should be at that part of the day when there is the most freedom from one's daily activities and the least liability to interruption. Noontime may be desirable for some. Early twilight may be better for others. The hour of retiring for the night will probably be the most convenient for many. This time for quiet thought should not be made a substitute for morning meditation. If the student is fortunate enough to be giving a few minutes to that shortly after rising, it should be a period of tranquil thinking and aspiration rather than of strenuous, will compelling mental effort. The mind can dwell upon what has been read during the day, and the facts and principles set forth by the author, or at least some of them, can be recalled, pondered over, and applied to what one knows of life through personal experience. Part of the time can be given to the experiences of the past 24 hours. The mind can run back over the winding path traversed during that time. The people met, the things said, done, thought, and desired, and each can be considered in the light of the higher life. Was the conduct all that could be desired? Was any opportunity to be helpful overlooked? Was any word spoken that was better unsaid? Was any thought entertained that should not have been harbored? In short, did you live up to your highest aspiration, or was there a weak point to be carefully strengthened for the morrow? In thus pondering over the reading and the events of the day, and renewing the determination to live up to the highest one can conceive, the half-hour speeds swiftly and pleasantly past, and by the wondrous alchemy of mental action, experience is transmuted into spiritual strength. The entire time of this meditative fragment of the day should not be given to retrospective thought. At least a few minutes should always be devoted to pondering over the inner life and the purpose of existence. This will prove a source of real strength, a living spring of progressive energy. Think upon the desirability of the higher life and of the transitory nature of everything in the visible world. Reflect upon the swift flight of time the ever-increasing speed with which the years are rolling by, upon the fact that the physical life is as short as it is important, and that whoever would use it wisely has no time to lose from what remains. Consider the utter uselessness of striving for wealth, of accumulation of fortune, large or small, of giving more attention to the physical body than will keep it in health and comfort, and remember that all energy beyond that expended upon physical things to accumulate them and take care of them is worse than wasted, for it is thought and energy invested in the perishable, time and energy that could be utilized in the useful work of helping others forward. 
which incidentally builds into your own soul the things that do not perish, but which will multiply your strength and widen your field for future lives. Reflect upon the fact that warm friendships are superior to material possessions. Upon the desirability of sterling character qualities. Upon the fact that every little virtue, grace, power, and attribute of character built into one's self during this physical life becomes an eternal possession. A never-failing source of sunshine and joyousness through all future lives. Recall the most carefree, joyous, exalted moments of your conscious existence and reflect that that condition should be your normal physical life. That life rightly lived is joy, although the vast majority do not suspect it, and that a far happier life than the imagination can picture can be yours in the near future if the aspiration to live up to the highest that is in you is assiduously cultivated. For at least a few moments daily, give free rein to your imagination and let it picture the future field of your activities. Build the stage upon which you shall play the drama of your lives. Refuse to live within the narrow walls of this one incarnation. Sweep them aside and realize that this little life is but the dull and gloomy morning of the coming radiant day. Plan not for this small hour, but count the lives that lie ahead as a part, with this of one imposing whole. Look forward to future lives, as youth looks forward to maturity. Make your plans for the remainder of this incarnation, as in the closing period of school years, one plans his life's career, shaping his present energies to serve his future purpose. This daily glimpse of wider fields in which the seeds of present thought shall blossom into deeds of worth in future lives will, in time, fan the faintest aspirations into steady flame and give to the inner life a reality that enables the student to comprehend something of the delusive character of the physical existence with its false standards that lead the unwary astray. Chapter 5 Safe and Dangerous Mental Conditions In the previous chapter, it was suggested that the time set aside daily for reviewing the events of the preceding hours and pondering over the meaning of life and its varied problems should be a period of tranquil thought and aspiration. Perhaps it may not be amiss to add that the word tranquil should not be taken to mean the passivity that characterizes the trance medium who is about to pass under control. To assume that attitude of mind is to abandon oneself to the psychic circumstances of the moment without the slightest opportunity of judging whether they may be good or bad. It would be much as though a blind man who could swim but a little should fling himself upon the tide, not knowing whether it would carry him into the water that was safe and comfortable or into a dangerous undertow. The student's will should always be in control. Under no circumstances should it be surrendered to anything or anybody. It is his purpose to know himself and his environment, to obtain first-hand knowledge of the mysteries of life, to purify his vehicles of consciousness, and develop his spiritual powers, that he may be of the greatest possible assistance in spreading the light and helping others forward. It is not his purpose to evolve the characteristics that will permit others to speak through him, to lend his body to others to be used as an instrument for the communication of information about which he can personally know nothing, and the truth or inaccuracy of which he cannot possibly determine, 
That sort of thing can well be left to those who desire to engage in it. The way of the student of occultism lies in the opposite direction. He is to learn the mastery of matter and acquire intelligent control over occult forces, not to become an unconscious and helpless automaton in the hands of others. Therefore, when he withdraws daily into the quietude of the most retired spot to which he has access, and there, alone with his thoughts, calmly and serenely gives himself up to reflections upon the higher life, his mental attitude should be one of reception but not of surrender. He should be as one who listens for the faintest whisper from the depths of being, but who uses discrimination in its testing and reason in its interpretation. He should be at all times mentally and morally awake and alert. He should not be misled by the widespread belief that the invisible world is sharply divided into two parts, and that those who seek information from the realm hidden to physical senses are surely making connections with that part known as heaven when they succeed in establishing communication. Another common misconception is that all who have died are good and wise, and it is a dangerous one. The chief difference between those we call dead and the rest of us is that they have no physical bodies through which to function in the visible world. As to moral difference, there is none. And the astral world certainly presents quite as many grades of moral and intellectual development as the physical life does. The selfishness and depravity that characterize unnumbered thousands here are fully as conspicuous there. Moreover, it is the lower and grosser part of the astral world that impinges upon the physical and the facility of communication increases with the coarseness and materiality of the matter forming the normal habitat of the disembodied intelligence. Therefore, should the student of occultism surrender his physical body to such entities as may desire to take possession of it, the probability of getting information of any value is exceedingly small while the possibility of coming into contact with most unfortunate influences is great. Nor would the good intentions of the student be a guarantee that this would not occur, any more than the good intentions of an experimenting chemist will ensure him against injury if he brings the wrong ingredients together. The outcome for the student would doubtless depend upon the karma of the past and the natural affinity he might or might not have for various classes of entities inhabiting the lower levels of the astral world. But aside from what might occur in such a case, the passive surrender of his body to become the instrument of another, no matter how well he might be protected by his karma, is a step in the wrong direction and therefore not progress at all. One purpose of human evolution is to achieve the mastery of matter, to come into perfect control of the vehicles of consciousness. To this end, the will must be cultivated, not surrendered, strengthened, not enfeebled. Chapter 6. Self-Reliance One of the things to be constantly aimed at is self-reliance. It should be most assiduously cultivated. The sincere student of occultism is striving to perfect himself as an instrument to be used in quickening human evolution. He may now be serving that sublime purpose in the very humblest way, but he will not overlook the fact that great tasks await the willing and capable worker, that volunteers for selfless service are very, very few, and that the need of them is great. 
Therefore, he will understand that as rapidly as he can fit himself for effective service, the larger tasks will be found at hand awaiting him. But only those who have evolved the necessary qualities are available for the work and can hope to be given a part in it. And of what use would one be who has not become self-reliant? Worlds are not shaped with the helpless hands of infants. We must get beyond the clinging, timorous, dependent stage that characterizes children before we shall be of much real service in the evolutionary work. There is an attitude of mind that means, well, I'm willing enough, but I don't know what to do. I'm ready to work if somebody will furnish me a place. That is much better than indifference, but it is not the self-reliant attitude that one should strive to reach. The desirable mental attitude is one of strong, resolute determination to find a way to serve without anybody's help. A desire to be useful, directed by steady, self-reliant purpose. In the most prosaic affairs of life and in the earth's hurly-burly business grind, it is the self-reliant who moves the world. The self-reliant man comes to the front in times of difficulty and peril as naturally as oil comes to the surface of water. He belongs there by right of ability to manage, to direct. Being in control of himself, he can control events. Being master of himself, he is master of the situation. In a crisis, all instinctively turn to the masterful man. One of the divine characteristics of occultism is its absolute justice. Each is exactly what he makes himself and gets precisely what he earns, not a jot less or more. He merely comes into his own. But he must come in on his own account. He cannot play the role of Macauber in occultism, waiting for something to turn up that will carry him into useful and desirable occult work, as a political upheaval sometimes carries an indifferent candidate into office to the surprise of everybody. The successful ones who have made rapid progress in occultism are those who have resolutely forced their way forward. They did not even wait for an opportunity, but made it. The most conspicuous figures in the history of theosophical society are striking examples of what comes of a self-reliant determination to serve. It does not wait even for an invitation to work for the common good. Each created a field and filled it. Colonel Alcott, for example, did not wait for the growth and maturity of an occult society that could furnish him the office of president and thus give him an opportunity to be uniquely useful. He set to work and built the organization, thus becoming signally useful to the world at once. The others did not wait for the Western nations to ask for theosophical literature. They anticipated the demand by producing a literature that would someday be recognized as marking an epoch in the history of Western civilization. A beginner in the study and practice of theosophy is often inclined to think that it is only a few who can do important things, and the rest are necessarily doomed to be satisfied with looking on and applauding. They forget that a multiplicity of agencies and methods are used to hasten human evolution and that the apparently unimportant things are quite as necessary as those that attract attention. They also forget that those who are doing the great things once stood where the beginner now stands, and that the younger student can as certainly reach an equally important and useful field of activities in the future, if he really desires to, and now seeks to be of service in the smaller way. If he puts his hand to the small work now, 
he shall grasp the great task later, as certainly as he lives and thinks. But no one may hope to be entrusted with great responsibilities until he has proved that he is capable of discharging small ones. Chapter 7. The Fatal Delusion of Delay Some sound advice can be given to seekers after occult wisdom in two words. Act now. Don't postpone good intentions. The world is full of people who have a vague notion that at some indefinite time and in some dimly comprehended fashion, they shall get to the point of being unselfishly useful to the world. Everywhere we meet the people who are going to do something sometime. One is waiting until the real estate takes a boom so that the enhanced value of his investments will pay his debts and then he will be free to devote himself to theosophical work. Another has ability as a public speaker and, with theosophical knowledge to impart, could render invaluable service. He realizes it, but feels that he must stay in business until he has made a lot of money, not realizing that he doesn't in the least need a lot of money, but that competent and superior work will win its way. Another has put his financial faith in minds and is only waiting till they develop and then, well, just wait. Something tremendous will happen. This victim of delusion misses the point that a dollar in the hand is worth more than a million in the mine that have not been found. The dollar he really could give might put a theosophical book in a public library, or buy a dinner for a hungry family, or mend the shoes of a shivering child. But the millions he dreams about will very probably never do anything for him except keep him impoverished in the search for them. And if the highly improbable should occur, and they ever really appear, it will so engross his attention in taking care of them that he won't have time to think of anything else. Another tells us that he is studying theosophy carefully and thoroughly, and when he has mastered it, he will begin to teach. Quite overlooking the fact that if he were to live a thousand years in this particular life, he could not have mastered it and that if he really desires to teach others, there are always those at hand to instruct in some way. The test of ability to teach is not the fact that the would-be teacher knows everything, but that he knows more than those to be taught. Every contact is an opportunity. And thus it is with those who wait. The delusion may have one form or another, but the result is the same. Inactivity and loss of opportunity. The very fact that they feel that they should do something is the evidence that they have reached a point in evolution where they must do something or miss their opportunity. That is to say, fail in what the Hindu calls their dharma. The next step in their evolution that can be taken along the line of least resistance. Act now. It is a thousand times better to do a little at once than to decide that a great deal shall be done in the indefinite future. Mexico is sometimes called by travelers the manana country. The peons who serve you readily agree that anything you desire to have done shall be done, but manana, senor, tomorrow. Never today on any account, if it can be avoided, but tomorrow, oh yes, si, senor. Anything you like, only not now. And so they sit in the sun and doze and dream, in serene confidence, that it will be easier tomorrow. It is an attitude of mind in perfect keeping with the accompanying poverty of results. 
It is the same species of delusion that afflicts those of higher intellectual development who yet do not stop to analyze their own motives and to see the inconsistency of their declarations. Anybody who really will do something in the future will be found doing a little something now, mingling at least a little present performance with his future promises. He will realize that the way to do things is to begin no matter how feeble the beginning. Act now. An occult significance invests those two little words. Action is the very expression of life on the physical plane. We are missing the purpose of life by inaction. We are simply marking time, not moving forward in the evolutionary march. So important is action that it is better even to blunder while trying to do our best than not to attempt to do anything at all. It is better for an infant to try to walk and fall than never to make the venture. The pain of the fall will pass, and a permanent lesson will be learned. In India, a mistaken class of devotees withdrawn from the world of affairs, and by cutting off almost entirely all relationship with the rest of the human race, seek through isolation and inaction to avoid responsibility for wrong acts, and seek salvation for the self. It is said by occult investigators that they succeed so well in the desire to hold themselves aloof from the race that a terrible isolation is their future fate. Against this foolish course, a great spiritual truth was once proclaimed. An action and a deed of mercy becomes an action and a deadly sin. And so none may escape his responsibilities to others by withdrawing tortoise-like into his shell of self-interests. The second word shares the importance of the first. Now signifies the most vital period of all time. The magic of success lies within that little word. The man who procrastinates necessarily misses opportunities. The very essence of success is the ability to instantly seize and utilize an opportunity. Every event has its psychological moment. The most momentous affairs of the world swing this way or that way with the instantaneous decision of some mastermind. On the other hand, the results in many a battle and in many a national crisis have been changed and the tide of success turned in the direction of disaster by the hesitation and indecision of one who was the unfortunate victim of procrastination. To form the habit of quick decision and prompt action is to arm oneself with a mighty weapon for successful work. And with the cultivation of such a habit of life gradually comes the ability to recognize the propitious moment when it arrives. There is a tide in the affairs of men, which taken at the flood leads on to fortune, omitted all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. That tide is often at the flood for a moment only, and he who, through procrastination, fails to utilize that golden moment has paid dearly for his negligence. Procrastination is one of the fetters that binds, one of the bars that imprisons. If we would make progress worthy of students of occultism, we must free ourselves from this encumbrance. We must acquire the act of prompt decision and immediate action. We must not be postponers. We must not be content with resolving that a thing ought to be done and then quieting the divine insistence of the higher self with the comfortable thought that somehow, sometime, we will do it. We must acquire the beneficent habit of doing things for the common welfare and of doing them now. Thank you for listening to this sample. 
To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.